maybe it was one year ago, s- several of our kids got invited to a birthday party, and the birthday party was at a grandparent's house. It wasn't at the um, parents' house, and we went. I knew the grandparents a little bit, not very well. They have a nice house, and it looked to me like they had just put in some nice sod in their front yard. They had a horseshoe driveway, and it was on a slope. And we got there late, and um, it was a little spongy, the grass was. It had been raining, and I was thinking, uh, there's no parking places on the driveway. And so I think Misty was driving. I don't remember. You probably do. So I'm going to blame her because I have the microphone. So she was, we were driving. You shouldn't do that if you're a husband. So we were driving, and she said, let's just park here. We, want, we have a big car. We have an expedition. We're trying to figure out where can we park so we can get out and we don't prevent anyone else from getting out. So we pulled through the horseshoe. We're on an incline. We moved over. We had two wheels in the side and two wheels on the driveway because that was the only way for anybody to get by. Otherwise, we would have blocked the driveway. And I'm wondering, are we going to get stuck? And she's from South Georgia and says, oh, we're not going to get stuck. It's going to be fine. So I'm the whole time, that's what I'm, I don't worry about my kids getting sick. I don't worry about somebody breaking into our house. I don't worry about the economy or anything with the church. I worry about, you know, returning a pair of pants to the store and hurting the cashier's feelings because the pants didn't fit me. Or, you know, the, the waitress gives me unsweet tea and I worry about offending her when I say I ordered sweet and not unsweet. So um, I don't worry about anything important and I'm somewhat of a sissy when it comes to confrontation. And so the whole time at this party, I'm thinking, we're going to get stuck, we're going to get stuck, we're going to get stuck. I'm giving her the roundup sign after about 30 minutes. We need to go. You know, I'm thinking if we get out first, then nobody's going to know what happened. Or we need to get out last so nobody sees us. I mean, they haven't even opened presents. And I'm like, we we really need to go. And so, of course, we leave at prime leaving time when everybody else leaves. And I give Misty the keys. So if we get stuck, it looks like she's the one that's driving. Again, wonderful husband that I am. So I get in the passenger seat and pretend to play with my phone or something. I'm not even paying attention. She starts the car, puts it in drive, hits the gas, and we're spitting side, dirt, everything. We can't go backwards because there's three or four cars behind us. We're not going forward at all. We're, we're stuck. There's a guy who went, to this, who went to school with me. He's a few years older than me. And for whatever reason, he carries around a tow chain in the back of his tr- truck. I was thrilled that he did at that point, and that I knew him, and he comes over, and he gets down on the ground, he hooks up the truck, uh, hooks up the tow chain to our truck, we put it in neutral, and he just pulls us out as easy as anything, and we put it in drive, and we fly away, so, no, we didn't do that, I don't know if we ever addressed, we addressed the grass situation, so, um, for me, this picture, getting stuck, tow chain, and somebody pulling you out, that's Easter Sunday for us. There's Good Friday moments for all of us where we feel stuck, we feel confused, we feel lost. What Easter does for us, it's not just a Sunday that we dress up. It's not just when there seems to be extra energy in the room. None of that on a practical daily basis. What Easter Sunday serves as, as an anchor in the future, if you will tether yourself to the reality of the resurrection, Jesus will pull you through your Good Fridays. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is put the car in neutral. He'll do the work. You stay connected to him. Keep that picture in mind as we read. Starting in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. 
He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. You can break this passage down kind of right in the middle. Chapter 8, kind of a good Friday passage. Chapter 9 is Easter Sunday. So Jesus is... Originally, he's talking with the 12. Peter has just said, Jesus says, who am I? Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, that's the right answer. And this is what that means. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be um, convicted. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, that's wrong. It's that Peter rebukes Jesus. That's a pretty strong word. And then Jesus turns the tables on Peter and rebukes him and says, no, this is, this is what is going to happen. And then Jesus expands the audience. He's gone from the 12. He says he calls the crowds to him and says, if anyone would come after me. He's generalizing this teaching. So it, it includes all of us. What he's about to say is not just for the original 12 disciples. It's not just for the guys who lived for the first 300 years of the Christian church when it was illegal to be a Christian. It's not just for missionaries in the Middle East where it's still illegal to be a Christian. This is for all of us. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Lent ended last night at 1159 some of you might have stayed up till 12 so you could start eating sweets again. I don't know, but Lent is a period. It's six and a half weeks of self-denial. It's not in the things that you gave up. Some of you gave up sweets. Some of you gave up coffee. Um, some of you gave up TV, Facebook, whatever. The things that you gave up are not inherently sinful. We don't give up sinful things for Lent. We stop sinning because it's sin. Lent or self-denial is really about giving up anything, neutral things, even good things, they get in the way of following Jesus. And what he's saying here is if anyone would come after me, you have to be willing to deny yourself, to give up neutral things, even good things, if they're going to keep you from following after me. He's looking for a lifestyle, a sustained no to ourselves in order to say a sustained yes to him. Anything that gets in the way, his assumption is you're going to lay those things down. And you can see that from the next phrase. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For us, take up, our, take up your cross, that's a metaphor. For the first audience, it was not. For them to hear, take up your cross, it meant they had been arrested and convicted and found guilty of a crime, and now they were being executed, and they're carrying a beam on their back down the road to the site where they're going to be crucified. That's what they heard. That's what Jesus did, and that's what they would have heard. It's not some cute metaphor for them. For them to hear, take up your cross, Jesus is saying, be ready to die at the hands of the state for saying, you're one of my 
disciples. That's a bold statement. I don't know if anyone has ever asked you to die for them before. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to do that. And death is the ultimate form of self-denial. What Jesus is doing is he's going all the way over here to the most extreme example. If you're willing to give up your life for me, then you ought to be willing to give up all of these lesser things for me as well. If I can convince you that even your own life is not, saving your own life is not justification for denying me, then of course none of these other things are as well. You see the picture there. Some of you, many of you are married. The, one of the worst things you can do in a marriage is to start throwing the divorce word around. You don't want that to be a part of your vocabulary mentally for you or as a couple once that word gets out there then you've opened up this whole realm of possibilities for leaving there's no no if you need to tell somebody tell me tell me use that word with me do not use it with your spouse the bible talks about not giving satan a foothold it's got the picture to me is him getting his foot in the door and then once his foot is in, it's really easy for him just to keep widening and widening and widening. His foot gets in because there's this one thing. Well, I would leave her if she does this. And then one becomes two, and then two becomes three, and three becomes six because they're subsets of one and all of this stuff. No, you keep the door closed. I'm never leaving. I'm here, period, dot, the end. And that's what Jesus is saying about our relationship with him. There's, no, there's never a reason to deny me. Ever, ever, ever. The door is closed. If I open it and say, well, if it's in order to save my wife, then it's okay. If it's in order to save my kids, then it's okay. If it's in order to save myself, then it's okay. Once I've opened that door a little, it's going to gradually open more and more and more. Harsh words for us. Strong words for us. He took it very seriously. The picture here is a court of law. And if you affirm following Jesus, you're going to die. If you deny knowing Jesus, then you're going to be set free. You're going to get to live. And what he's saying is, it's not worth it. What can you give in exchange for your life? Nothing. What good is it if you forfeit your soul and gain the whole world? It does you no good. You've lost something that's eternal in order to gain something that's temporary. Some people, they call them um, young earth creationists, believe the earth is 6,000 years old. I don't care if you buy that or not, but let's take that. That's the shortest, that's the youngest I've ever heard the earth mentioned, pegged. So you take 6,000 and then take your life expectancy. It's 79 years. That's the average in the United States, putting together men and women. And we set up kind of a, a ratio. We have 6,000 years. That's how long the earth has been around. And you're going to live 79 of that 6,000. If I turn that 6,000 into a 24-hour day, so 6,000 years, that equals 24 hours. The earth has been around for 24 hours. Your life expectancy, 79 years, is 18 minutes. And what Jesus is saying is anything during these 18 minutes, it's not worth 24 hours. And you know that. Peg yourself, however old you are. What do you have between now and 79? And then give me your worst case scenario. What is it for the gospel? What would you have to give up? What's the worst case scenario? Being bankrupt, being paralyzed, being widowed, being abandoned. What is it? What's the worst case scenario for you over the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years? And what Jesus is saying, it's not worth it. You're giving up, you're trading 24 hours of bliss, of abundant life. You're willing to give all that up to avoid 
eight or nine or ten or however many minutes you have left of Good Friday. It's not worth it. And heaven is not 24 hours. It busts the clock. Eternity breaks the clock. Whatever we have to give up to get there is worth it. It's not even, the scales aren't, it's not even fair. You can't weigh anything against forever. That's what he's saying. For us in this room, you're not going to die. We, if you live here, nobody's going to put a gun to your head and say, deny Jesus or I'm pulling. That's not where we live. We don't live in the Middle East where it's illegal to be a Christian or in North Korea or in China where the majority of the church is underground. But many of us live in the middle of Good Friday. If you can imagine the original 11 disciples on that Good Friday, the first one, they put all of their hope in Jesus. They put all of their weight on him. They've given three years of their lives, even risked their lives, to follow him. And he's hanging on a tree. The Old Testament says cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. In their view, something went sideways. He's the Christ. I've seen him heal people. He's healed blind people. He's raised dead people. He's spoken these words of truth with authority. All of that indicates to me there's something special about this guy. But I can't deny the fact that there he is hanging on a tree. And the Bible says, again, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. You're devastated. Your mentor for the past three years is dying. You're confused. All of your hopes that you'd put into him all seem to be unraveling. You're probably angry and have some regret. I wasted three years of my life following this guy, and this is how it's going to end. And you're absolutely scared to death because you're wondering if they're going to round you up too. Are they going to, am I going to be up there next week? Because they're going to, once they find out that I was one of his original 12, you better believe I'm going to deny. I want to wind up like he wound up. All of us have Good Friday moments where we're stuck, we're confused, we're frustrated, devastated, maybe. What I want to say to you this morning is Easter Sunday pulls you through. If you'll stay connected to the reality of the resurrection, that will pull you through. It will tow you out of that place of being stuck. And that's what this next little section in chapter 9 is about. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They're his closest three. He takes them up on a mountain. In the Old Testament, if you went up on a mountain, most likely you were going to meet God. It says in six days, I think it's in Exodus 24, Maybe 29, Moses says, um, Moses goes up on a mountain after six days to meet God. His, Jesus' clothes turn sparkling white. He's revealing his identity to these guys at this point. It's not just that he got somebody really great to bleach his clothes. He's, he's showing them, this is who I really am. He's gone from giving these very strong, very solemn, very harsh words, and that's how y'all are feeling right now. What? I gotta die. I gotta be willing to what for you? I've gotta be willing to sacrifice who for you? You expect what from me? He just laid all of that out. That's a heavy thing to carry. And he follows that up with this incredible demonstration of his divinity. And I think the point is to say 
You're not just, this is who you're doing these things for. You can trust what I'm saying to you because this is who I am. This is Philippians 2. You don't have to flip there. It'll be up on the screen. This is Paul. Your attitude, so our attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you've got the steps down. This is kind of Good Friday for Jesus. I'm, he's God, and he denies himself. All right, I'm not, and he denies himself again, and he denies himself again, and he denies himself again, all the way to the point of being publicly executed. Again, that word cursed hung on him. And then look at verse 9. Therefore, because of that, because Jesus stepped down, because he was willing to deny himself consistently, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then you see the uptick. Jesus steps down, deny myself, deny myself, deny myself, deny myself. Because he did that, then God is able, therefore, God is able to raise him up. That's Easter Sunday. That's for us as well. We need to have that same attitude that Jesus had. I'm going to deny myself these things that would keep me, whatever that is, from following him. There's no excuses for me. There's no reasons for me to compromise. I'm with him. And when things get difficult, I don't bail. And when things get confusing, I don't bail. And when things get hard, I don't bail. And because I don't bail, because I choose to stick, I'm, not, I'm just choosing to stick, he is then able to exalt me at his time and in his way. It doesn't mean I'm going to be on the cover of a magazine. It doesn't mean I'm going to be loaded. It doesn't mean I'm never going to experience difficulty. That's not what we're talking about about fulfilling the things that God has for us to do. That's a promise for you as well. This is 2 Corinthians 4. Hear this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. When Jesus was six months old, he was just as divine as he was on that mountain. When he was 13 and playing soccer down the road, he was just as divine as he was on that mountain. When he was 25 and making a chair for somebody as a carpenter, he was just as, div as divine as he was on that mountain. What he did on that mountain was he peeled back his humanity to say, hey, this is who I am. We... We, if you're a follower of Jesus, we possess this treasure. He is the Son of God. We're a Son of God. It's different, but we've been adopted by God into His family, and the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides within us. We have this treasure within us, and it's often hidden by our own fallenness and by the filth of living in this world. Don't forget who you are. In the middle of your Good Friday... Don't forget who you are. The transfiguration serves to encourage. Remember who lives within you. Remember the hope that you have. Remember the treasure that's in your heart. And yes, it can, it, it can be obscured by your own sinfulness, by my sinfulness. It can be obscured, again, by the fallenness of our world. But it doesn't change the reality. 
the spirit of the one that raised Christ from the dead is living within you. Eric talked last week. We are a temple of the Holy... Think about that. Individually, we are temples of God. God dwells within us if we're followers of Jesus. Again, easy to lose sight of that fact. The transfiguration, when you're in the middle of that Good Friday, you remember, God lives within you. So he goes up, has this encounter. Peter, let's build three. Let's build some shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then it says a cloud appeared. In the Old Testament, when a cloud appeared, that meant God was about to talk and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That reminds you of what Jesus heard at his baptism. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This was important for Peter. It's important for us. It was huge for Peter. Remember, he's the one that said, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one of God. Jesus says, and I'm going to suffer. And Peter says, no, you're not. That doesn't fit in the box. And Jesus rebukes him and says, listen, this is the way it's got to be. Peter needed to hear this. Again, if for some of us, Good Friday equals divine displeasure. When, my, when things get sideways for me, or things get sideways for you, for some of you, your first reaction is to say, what did I do wrong? What happened? God's mad at me. He's judging me. I'm being punished. I'm being disciplined. I blew it somewhere. You don't know where you blew it, but you're just assuming you blew it somewhere. Your circumstances would be better. Many of you are parents. How many of you punish your kids without telling them what you're punishing them for? Go to timeout. I'll tell you why later. You know, who does that? You're a bad parent if you do. You don't do that. You tell them why you're disciplining. You don't make them guess. But we think God does that with us all the time. Things go, things get nutty, things get tough, things difficult, whatever, in our life. And our immediate response is, God must be angry with me. He's causing all this bad stuff to happen. You don't know what you did. You just figure you did something. He's going to tell you. He's a better dad than your dad. He's a better dad than any of us are. He knows how to parent his children. If you've messed up, believe me, he's going to let you know because he doesn't want you to do it again. It's not some X marks the spot, find the treasure map, and hopefully you can get the answer at some point. Peter needed to hear this. Difficulty, tough circumstances, suffering, that does not indicate divine displeasure. It doesn't mean you've missed it. Acts 9.16, Saul, who later is named Paul, Saul becomes a Christian. And God sends a prophet, Ananias, to him and says, tell Saul this. Maybe it's Agabus. He sends a prophet to him. Tell Saul this. He needs to know how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Then read 2 Corinthians 10. 11, 12, read that chunk. See what Paul suffered. It wasn't because he was disobedient. It was because he was obedient. The suffering was a part of it. Good Friday for Paul, it was a part of his deal. It didn't mean he'd miss God a bit. And the same thing is true for us. Just because it's a Good Friday moment does not mean you've missed God at all. It doesn't mean you took a wrong turn. There are people here, you're going to bail. You're not thinking about bailing on Jesus, but you're bailing on some level of obedience, something he's called you to because it's not working out. And I'm saying don't. Just because it's difficult, don't. That's not an indication of anything. 
Jesus hanging on a cross doesn't mean he missed God. It meant he was squarely where he needed to be. It didn't mean he was not the Messiah. It vindicated the fact that he was. Whom I love. Beloved, that's the word there. For some of you, it's not about obedience and kind of doing, following Jesus. It's about, am I still in? It's Good Friday. Does God even love me anymore? This is my son, whom I love, who's about to hang on a tree. That reality of the crucifixion did nothing to undercut the fact that Jesus was beloved of God. Your suffering, your struggling, your confusion, your disappointment does not undercut the fact that you're his son, man or woman. You're his son, and he loves you, period, dot, the end. His love for you is not based on those external circumstances. It's great when things are rolling, but when they're not, that doesn't change the fact that he loves you. Don't allow something as crucial as your identity in Christ to be shaped by your circumstances. It's got to go deeper than that. If you start questioning whether the Father loves you every time you get a flat tire, silly, you get what I'm saying. That's not deep enough. Your roots have got to go deeper than that. They have to. Because you're going to have a flat tire. And you're going to get sideswiped. And you're going to get rear-ended. And the insurance company's not going to pay. It's got to be deeper than that. You get that. This is my son, whom I love, who is about to go be publicly executed. And that's not an indication that I'm upset with him. It's not an indication that he's missed it. And it's not an indication that I don't love him. None of those things are true. Mark 13, 54, Jesus says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On Good Friday, we feel that. We feel forsaken. And Jesus felt it. It wasn't just a, something that he quoted. He felt that. He felt forsaken by God. And it's interesting to me, in Matthew 28, it's the last words in Matthew's gospel that he speaks to his disciples. What, is, what does he say? Never will I leave you. Or forsake you. Interesting promise based on what Jesus had experienced, right? He knows we're going to feel that way. And he says, you're going to feel this. I felt it too. You're going to feel this. It's not reality. In the middle of a Good Friday, you're not alone. It doesn't mean God's unhappy with you. It doesn't mean he's angry with you. It doesn't mean he's punishing you. I haven't gone anywhere. You hang on to Easter and it will pull you through. If you'll hang on to Sunday, it'll get you through Friday. Let's do this. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to talk slash pray a long prayer here. So you just close your eyes and settle in for a second. The resurrection is the best attested fact in ancient history. If you have questions about whether the resurrection happened, I'd love to talk with you about that again. In all of ancient history, no event has as much or as strong of evidence as the resurrection. And what the Father says on this mountain, this is my son whom I love, so what? So listen to him. The resurrection for us validates everything Jesus said. We can trust him. Because he's been raised. It's kind of uh, 
Babe Ruth kind of famously called a home run one time. He pointed with his bat out into the outfield. And then the next pitch, he hit right where he pointed the bat. Jesus did the same thing. He didn't just come back from the grave. He said he was going to happen. In three days, I'm going to get up. There's about 120 billion people who've ever lived. And 119,999,999,999 of them fit in one camp. And then we got this other guy who's in a category all by himself who says, I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to get up, and he actually does it. Plenty of people maybe have claimed divine status. Nobody else has an empty tomb on their resume. That reality should give you confidence in listening to him because he's this one who's been raised from the grave. You can put your full weight on his words. He's not just a smart guy giving you advice. He's God telling you how it is. This is what he says. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. You're in a good Friday moment. That promise is I'm going to meet your needs. Whatever you need, I got it. You ask me for help, I'll answer. If that's you this morning, just ask two words, help me. I promise you he'll answer that prayer. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You can trust him. Good Friday, it's hard to figure your way out. It's hard to know which way forward, which way is up. You don't have to. You stay tethered to him. He'll tow you out. He'll lead you through. And you can trust him to do that. His death demonstrates his commitment to you and his love for you. So put the car in neutral and let him lead. Put it in neutral and let him lead. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That first Good Friday, Jesus wrote a check for our sins. The Bible says he gave his life as a ransom for many. He wrote a check, and the first Easter Sunday demonstrates that the check cleared. When he came out of the grave, it demonstrated the debt has been paid in full. And because of that, because of that reality, he beat the biggest bully on the block, death the one everybody succumbs to. He overcame death. So what have you got? You have cancer. You have frustration. You have confusion. You have alienation. You have a broken marriage. You have a wayward kid. You've got a sorry-looking bank account. What do you have? It's not death. If he beat that, what have you got that he can't beat? That's Easter Sunday, pulling you through your Good Friday. God, my prayer for each of us in this room, the the pattern, your standard operating procedure, is this Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And for those of us who are experiencing those moments right now, I pray as the band sings this song over us, that you would begin to speak into those areas of need. God, that we would listen to you and that you would say something to us in a way that we would understand that would pull us through. The band's going to sing a song. I don't, you don't know it, so just stay in your seats. 
ask the Lord to do some work in your heart. I'll be up front if you want prayer for anything. I'd love to pray with you. Everybody's eyes will be closed so they won't see you come forward. At the end of this song, then we're going to stand up and we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday and what Jesus has done. Amen.